Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Leading in a Crisis podcast. On this podcast, we talk all things crisis management, and we deliver that through storytelling, interviews, and lessons learned shared from experienced crisis leaders. I'm Tom Mueller coming to you from Texas today. With me, as always, is my co-host, Mark Mullen, joining us from Washington State. Hi, Mark. Hello, Tom. Looking forward to our time together today. You bet. It's going to be fascinating conversation today. Our guest is retired U.S. Ambassador Lewis Luck, uh, a career diplomat who has just loads of experience dealing with crisis-related issues, particularly during his time with the USAID office. So uh, I met the ambassador a couple of months ago at an event and asked him to come on. So he's with us today. Ambassador, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. Hey, as we do on this podcast, we ask our guests to introduce themselves. So would you just take a little while and give us a, a quick history of your life and career? Um, okay, that's that's a big task. Before I moved to Costa Rica, where I am right now, uh, I lived in Austin, Texas, and for a number of uh, for a number of years. But then I joined the Foreign Service, which is something I, I guess I always wanted to do. When I they say, "What do you want to do when you grow up?" and I, I was very happy to get into the Foreign Service of uh, USAID, which is the uh, U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, among other things, uh, USAID does uh, economic development and humanitarian assistance response overseas. Uh, in terms of crisis management or crisis response, USAID is the international FEMA. And, you know, FEMA operates domestically and uh, USAID operates overseas. So I, um, I I missed a lot of popular culture uh, in, the, in the U.S. I basically went overseas in 1978 and sort of only, only came back just a few years ago and found uh, Austin, Texas to be very, very, a very, very changed uh, city. So uh, for, for better, or for worse, I had the chance to uh, work in about, um, I guess it was about long term, about 11 or 12 countries, more or less equally divided between Latin America, Africa and the Middle East. And I'm really more of a I speak French and uh, more or less a, a Middle East expert. And, uh, you know, the, the current crisis is. In, in Gaza and so forth, this really is very uh, tragic for me, very pertinent, because I, I kind of lived in that area of the world for a long time. But in any, any event, um, the crisis response things that I've been in charge of was, first of all, the the, the lead up to Iraq reconstruction, which was uh, from really for planning in 2002 and then implementation 2003, 2004 when I was in Baghdad. And that we were very concerned about a, a large humanitarian, uh, the possibility of a humanitarian disaster, which did not happen, which is fortunate. The other one, more to the point, was I was um, made the uh, the head of the whole, what was it called, the whole of government response after the 2010 Haiti earthquake. So I was in charge of the USAID response, but the military, we were all very much sewed in with the, the, mil the military who had most of the assets and we worked very productively together. That was quite a task and quite a quite an event that uh, you've heard me talk about before. Let's jump right into the Haiti story, uh, Ambassador, because it was it was just sort of fascinating when you got the phone call and said, hey, we want you to head to Haiti. What was it like sort of walking into the humanitarian crisis or the anticipated crisis that was Haiti at that point in time? And 
how did you get things organized and get rolling? Well, first of all, let me say I, I had been in Haiti several times before. Really, I took to work in uh, starting in 1994, and then I was back again as the director of of the USAID mission in 2000 2001. So I was very familiar with Haiti. I already spoke French. Turns out that the president of Haiti during uh, during the earthquake was also the president when I'd been there before. I used to be um, acting ambassador on a number of occasions, so I knew him, and I, so I was very familiar with Haiti and uh, with the you know the situation in Haiti is as sad and crazy as it sometimes and disorganized as it sometimes is. Anyway, so I got the call. You know, I was in Austin and got the call. Can you come to Washington right away? And I sort of had a feeling they, I mean, clearly they had something in mind for me. I didn't know I was going to end up being the head of the whole thing. And in fact, I, I met with the um, administrator of USAID after he had only been in the office for, for about two days and he was sending me to Haiti and, and he wouldn't, he said, I, I need you to get out to Dulles and get on a plane and uh, go to Haiti. And I said, well, what's my job? And he sort of didn't answer. And finally, he, finally he said, um, you're in charge. And I said, in charge of what? He said, you're in charge of the whole thing. So, um, okay. I mean, that was, and he said, by the way, the future of the agency, it really depends on how well, how, how well you and we do. So I said, well, there's no pressure there. That's great. Anyway, so I had I had to Dulles. I get on a small jet with uh, several of my uh, colleagues to be, and we uh, coming into land on the the one the single runway into Port-au-Prince, and our our plane was waved off. They they didn't know that I was the I the, the great Poobah, you know, allegedly in charge of this whole thing. It was on this plane that they wouldn't let us land, so we went to the neighboring islands, the Turks and Caicos, and. Long story short, we had to I had to figure a way to get to Port-au-Prince because they told me my first uh, duty was to uh, meet the Secretary of State, Mrs. Clinton, uh, when she got off the plane. So, I mean, there was I was working hard to do that. But to, to more directly answer your, your question, I mean, there's it would be completely overwhelming and always was completely overwhelming to to run into uh, the responsibility of what and how are you going to do uh, in, in a disaster situation where people are really dead and dying right and left. It's very sobering. It was a disaster of what I used to say to the press. It was a disaster of, of biblical proportions and all that, that you can imagine and that that would entail. And I, you know, I, I had lived and worked in, in Haiti before, as I said, so it was, I knew the place really well. And I was looking at the reports on television before I got there and said, oh my God, this, this place that I know so well, it's really, it's really, uh, it's really hurting now. But we we do have people trained and we have systems in place, more or less, to be able to respond to the immediate needs. And I think I told, I mentioned to you before, we have uh, this organization in USAID called the DART, Disaster Assistance Response Team. Those are specialists that correspond to, say, all, all of the sectors that you would need to have covered in order to have a, a competent uh, response in those sectors being the ones you would expect, you know, food, water, health and sanitation, logistics, transportation. Normally, you would expect that construct for, for us, the U.S., to fit in with a construct that was led overall by the U.N. Uh, and But in this case, it was it was very it, it couldn't really work that way because the U.N. headquarters had been destroyed by the earthquake and many of our U.N. counterparts were dead. So we had to uh, sort of sensitively try to 
replace them where it was necessary and 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 um, go go from there work with the Haitian government as weak as it always has been and was but you know giving them the respect that you know they're this is your country and we need to we need to work uh, you know cooperatively with, with you and everybody else you know you're never prepared you, you have systems in place you have people that are trained but the first few days are absolute pandemonium it, we call it the hair on fire days and uh, every day it gets a little bit better uh you have to have adequate personnel and other kinds of material support fortunately we had the the u.s military and all of their incredible assets with all their training and all this these wonderful people that were you know, twenty-one thousand soldiers sailors corpsmen corps women every i think i think everybody but the marines were there and it was uh they just did an incredible job anyway so i'll over to you so ambassador describe those those early days of the response for us because we know, you know, when you deal with a large scale crisis situation that oftentimes, uh, you know, you have too few people doing too many tasks and the days are long and the people get tired. Um, how was it for you in the in the early days responding to this Haiti crisis? Well, we knew it was going to be um, very, very difficult um, sort of physically on us. I mean, you, when you're dealing with people that are, you know, dead and dying, you, you sort of have the you sort of say to heck with whether I'm tired or not. Like, let's let's we have to do pedal to the metal because people are counting on us. Um, we needed to, to save lives, pull people out of buildings. We had uh, a couple of rescue uh, search and rescue teams that we have uh, on uh, standby that we brought in from uh, Virginia and from uh, from California. So um, it's it's pandemonium, but you, you know every you know you say every day gets a little bit better. So. The first, uh, the first steps were really basically to try to figure out how am I going to, where am I going to stay? Where am I going to, from where am I going to work? Uh, do we have connectivity? How do we communicate with everybody else? Who's who's in charge? Who are my counterparts within the military? Who are my counterparts within, you know, you have to get all of this sorted out within a, a system that is really has already by definition fallen apart and needs to slowly be put back together. Now, I know that, um, of course, when you're working long days like that, uh, having experts who can get up to speed quickly and work quickly is is critical, actually. So the DART team that you mentioned, um, the Disaster Assistance Response Team, um, how well equipped were those folks to get up to speed and, and get on the ground quickly? They they're very good at their jobs. They're well trained and they deploy whenever needed. And we have dark teams uh, scattered through the you know the regions of the world that are on you know on call uh, sometimes in the region and sometimes out of Washington to be able to to do what they do. So they're they know what they're doing, but they're they're subjected to the same kind of chaos uh, that everybody else is to start with. So their job essentially was to assess, you know, figure out where the problems are. How serious is the is the water situation? For example, is there uh, sufficient are there sufficient quantities of, of potable water? Are there um, sufficient quantities of food in the country? If not, we what do we do to bring it in? What do we do to uh, facilitate you know everything that needs to be done in order to make uh, make it a little bit better every day? So they assessed, and it was um, fairly quickly. It was evident that you know there was a 
there was not really a, a major food problem, even though we were ready to bring in all kinds of food. I mean, we're bringing food to Haiti anyway. Uh, and it, we were ready to bring in and did bring in bottled water, uh, water in a larger quantity, storage uh, things on ships, et cetera. Um, but it was really clear to us that that, that food availability was or water availability was not really the problem. It was a question more of distribution and transport. So uh, we had we we worked on all of those problems in all of those sectors uh, right from the get go. But do you find as you're planning all that and if you've got your dark team there in your military, it sounds like you're practically literally an army descending with marching orders and everything else. But how quickly do you have to start um, letting the country, in this case, letting the government of Haiti take over the response or run the response or direct the response? Yeah, that that's a really good um, point in that, it, you know, we, all, we were always very clear about the fact this is not our country. We need to do our job. Get, get help Haiti get back on its feet uh, to the extent it can, and then and then leave. The other thing we didn't want to do is is uh, put the con the country on a uh, dependency on uh, donated food and water and all that stuff when that they, they actually have weak as it may be they have a, they have a private sector and it was important for the private sector to get back and fill that that function and do do you know what they would normally do anyway in a non crisis situation so. We were very, very sensitive about all of that. That's and, so you have a strong sensitivity to the local, the local yeah. business, the local industry. And I, I, I had a good. Um, there were some fortuitous things that happened in Haiti uh, that made the situation as bad as it, horrible and unspeakably terrible as it was, made things get, go a little bit better. I mean, the UN was debilitated, so they had to they had to bring in people from New York. To from the UN headquarters to to run the the UN operation, who happened to be an American and happened to be a friend of mine, so we had already had a a, a great relationship and a great rapport, and that was that was going to continue as long as he and I were there. The other thing is that the uh, the military head and the, these are the, this was the U.S. military head had all the tools. They had all the fun stuff, you know, an aircraft carrier, the SS Hope, uh, the um, helicopter carrier the baton and so forth. And, and as I said before, 21,000 sailors and soldiers and uh, uh, Coast Guard people, uh, they were they were really incredibly well uh, equipped and very, very well led. My, my military counterpart had been the head of the, the, the deputy commander of the Southcom, Southern Command. And he was two three-star general and just absolutely superb. And the other thing that was, that was interesting that happened there was, uh, this is General Ken Keene, uh, General Keene's counterpart within the UN, and there was a UN stabilization force in Haiti at the time of the earthquake called MINUSTA. MINUSTA was, a, don't ask me what the, Mac, the acronym stands for because I forgot, but the uh, the head of that was a Brazilian general. The Brazilians were really the head of MINUSTA, but with all re other representative countries. He had gone to staff, that general, the Brazilian general, had gone to staff college with the, the American general. So they were friends. So we all had this really good, uh, you know, prior existing relationships, which really eased the communication tremendously. Ambassador, I know, uh, you know, when we've talked in the past, you've you've mentioned uh, at times some of the challenges that you can run into, you, you know, with personnel 
who are involved in the response. Now, when you know the people you're working with, as you just described with the, the leadership there, things can go really smoothly. But there are times when you get different groups of people coming together to support a response, and, and sometimes things can get a little off kilter. Have you seen any examples where you know some of your staff, um, you know, where you ran into those issues? Well, the first issue was really that we were not, as an agency, we were really not well equipped to muster, uh, to 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 mobilize quickly with additional staff as needed. You know, ours is it's a it's the government, okay? It's this massive bureaucracy, and it's slow, and it it there have to be really need to be better mechanisms to be able to uh, mobilize the people that we needed. So a lot of times. Um, it was fortunate that FEMA was actually present there, even though FEMA doesn't work overseas. For some, they were there because they were invited there by the, the head of USAID. I was able to to use some of those FEMA people to fill in some of our own gaps. So we had plenty of gaps, and we we tried over time to get as many people as we as we needed. It was important for us to do as best we could for the emergency. Only the and I should said this earlier. The we were there for the emergency response and uh, recovery stage, not, not nothing to do with re reconstruction. This is only the emergency response, which, you know, for a while people are alive and you're pulling uh, live people out of buildings. And then for a while, then after a couple of weeks, you say, well, okay, there's very little hope left for, for more alive folks. We're going to have to transition to, uh, uh, to recovery. And, and you go, you go into that stage. Uh, we, we knew that that was going to, probably take about three months to to do all of that. One of the other problems that I think we we had overcome by the time we got to Haiti was in 2010 was that um, USAID was used to dealing with the military, finally. Because when I was in Iraq, it, there was a lot of resistance on the part of some of the USAID people who said, oh, well, we're, we're not military. We don't want to work with the military. Uh, you know, some of this ideological stuff that I just could not relate to because you need to get your help from Whenever you, from wherever you can get your help uh, in order to have a competent and thorough response. Uh, by the time we and, and and by the same by the same token, a lot of the military folks had no idea what USAID was. They, they just knew that we had some money and they they kind of wanted it. And uh, so it was uh, it was it was a little uncomfortable in in in, uh, in Iraq uh, 2002 through 2004. Uh, but we all went to school on that particular uh, on that particular instance and that example. And we learned about uh, enhanced, improved civilian military cooperation, coordination. There was all kinds of seminars. There were lessons learned. There was, all, you, know, you know, you can imagine how many PowerPoints the, uh, the military may have put together in order to teach its people like we did teach, you know, trying to instruct our people about uh, the, the the relative uh, advantages of each of these uh, agencies or our agency uh, versus the military with all of their assets, organizations and, and capabilities and so forth. Um, I have a question about timing and mission. They kind of fit together. But you, you said that you were called to uh, D.C. and your boss of two days sent you to Haiti with the direction um, you're you're in charge of everything. And then you start calling in bodies to come and come and work. How soon did you have a timeline so you could tell people we're going to need you for three months or we're going to need you for two weeks? 
Um, and how long did you get to keep that you're in charge of everything title before somebody <laughs> else started telling you, no, that's not what I meant? Uh, you're a very sage person, Mr. Bork. Uh, I was telling uh, Tom the other day, the military has a, a great expression called the 2000 mile long screwdriver, which means how this is how you get managed from from Washington or from up far away by all of your uh, many bosses worry about the military because they were they were great and they were fine anyway i did i did have to worry about of uh threats of micromanagement from our own people back in uh, back in washington and uh told me at one point they said uh, you know your job once you get there uh you need to spend most of your time doing powerpoints for the president and i said uh, that's crazy i mean i'm not going to do that that's 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 insane and frankly i mean we got we're pulling bodies out of buildings i mean focused effort here of all the, the few people that we have and you know and, and do and, and build uh create a little bit of success and a little bit of order and build on that uh i didn't i wasn't able to tell people i didn't have the luxury of saying oh come work for work for us for three months or two weeks i was saying come work for us at all come here and I had I had some of my old um, colleagues from from Iraq days that would hear me like on NPR on on radio and they would volunteer and they would show up. It was amazing. So uh, we had throughout the, the you say people from uh, all over uh, the hemisphere and uh, the world actually who came in logistics people uh, not nearly in the numbers that we wanted but we were able to sort of pack catch can with uh, some of the FEMA people and some of the other contractors that we were able to get. But I mean, I used to, I used, to, I would write papers about this kind of thing. And when we were in Iraq, we had situation times 10 in Iraq because we, we, it was a huge operation and we needed to have of mobilizing uh, technical qualified people quickly to fill these kinds of positions. And we, we we figured it out finally in Iraq, but not using the USAID personnel system, but using a different contracting. Where we were doing sort of all of the above in Haiti and trying to uh, patch it all together. And you know, like I told uh, Tom before, I, we, every day got a little bit better. Crazy, and I told my people, I said, you know, you, you, the days are very very long, and. Um, um, what you need to do is realize that this is a, this is a sprint, not a this is a this is marathon, not a sprint. And I was I completely violated immediately by you know trying to work twenty hour days and just um, after a while you fall apart. And physically we were we were sort of uh, we were not our, our finest after you do about two weeks or three weeks of twenty hour days. But that's really what the job that the job needed far more than that. So, and we were very, very dedicated to trying to uh, just looking around the damages of Port-au-Prince and the, the the bodies stacked up, and the, you know my my old staff coming to work, and you know their parents had all been killed, and it was just it was unbelievable stuff. So, uh, you, you you try not to um, you got you know you have to you have to remain focused, remain. Um, <laughs> Try to be organized, uh, delegate authority, understand that uh, the people that that have the expertise, it's their job to to do it, and it's certainly not my job to to micromanage them. And I I trip I tried to get that message back to Washington: don't micromanage us.
we sort of know what we're doing. That concludes the first part of our interview with Ambassador Lewis Luck. Tune into our next episode to hear the conclusion of the interview, during which the ambassador talks about dealing with a plethora of NGOs on the ground in Haiti, and also gives us some pointers for how to deal with a tough boss, which in his case was the Secretary of State. If you want to reach us here at the show, you can email me at tom at leadinginacrisis.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you soon on the next episode of the Leading in a Crisis podcast.